Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week we are talking about suicide prevention. My name is Emily Mitchell. I use she her pronouns and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today I have Charlotte Melton. Charlotte uses she, her pronouns and is the vice president of the Mental Health Association of Central Florida. A passionate leader in mental health advocacy, Charlotte brings with her a peer perspective and 12 years of education and direct client advocacy. Charlotte, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me in this conversation. Really excited to have you. And I also have returning Sarah Moore. Sarah uses she, her pronouns and is a former therapy intern and volunteer with the Victim Service Center and a recent Rollins College Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program graduate. Her personal and clinical interests center on the role trauma, resiliency, and healing influence individual, family, and community function alike. Sarah, thanks for coming back. We're excited to have you here as well. Always a pleasure. Awesome, so as a very brief introduction, Suicide Prevention Week is from September 6th to September 12th this year. And suicide being the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, we wanted to have an important discussion on myths surrounding suicide, how isolation and COVID may have affected trends, and how we can help support the people in our lives experiencing suicidal ideation. So with that in mind, I wanted to just start it off with you, Charlotte. As the Vice President of the Mental Health Association of Central Florida, could you tell us a little bit about what you do day to day? I'm so excited about the position I get to hold in the Mental Health Association of Central Florida as the Vice President because I get to walk the two worlds between direct client contact and system organization. So I get to work with individuals having crises or family members calling out about someone they're worried about. But I also get to work with larger community entities who are either direct service providers or stakeholders or someone just passionate and interested and through philanthropy is connecting to a mission. Um, So it's really an exciting full spectrum view 
day-to-day uh, -day of what the people are dealing with and what our system is trying to do to meet needs. Thank you so much for sharing that. And did you are always start as the vice president at the um, Mental Health Association of Central Florida, or did you come in in a different role before? I started with the Mental Health Association actually as a student at UCF in my undergraduate for psychology. I had transferred over as an accounting major and in my junior year was making a, a better direction for myself as far as my education. And oh my goodness, a junior figuring out what next steps as far as experience, there's no way I'm getting into research. So getting into a service learning course just allowed Kismet to come in and I found the Mental Health Association of Central Florida at a time in which they really needed someone with my skill set. So I started as an intern, I became a receptionist, and the 12 year journey has brought me to some interesting program dynamics. It's It's been a lot of fun. There's a lot of culture in the Mental Health Association and I'm happy to be a part of it. We're really happy to have you here and, and we'll get more into kind of the current trends right now, but I'm just curious if you've seen any kind of changes since you started as an intern to, to where you are now with the association itself. I have seen a trend when we started or when I started with the agency, the Mental Health Association has been around actually since 1946, which is a really exciting thing as an institution to say that mental health has been the conversation for that long. Um, so way before I joined the agency, I was able to discover how we shaped. So before I joined, the Mental Health Association of Central Florida was established as the Mental Hygiene Association. So definitely reflective of current cultural language in the 1940s about how was mental health viewed. And what's so interesting to me is as a individual growing up with my own needs as a peer and working into the system as a student and then as a professional, I'm seeing us come back to that mental hygiene factor, which is so interesting. That connection of mental health and health separate so that we could become a field and really create our own trends and our own science and our own research as as a viable fields aside from health, mental health being a need and treatment, it's coming back. Um, and in just my short time with the agency, I'm also noticing an increase in direct individual advocacy. So an individual asking for their own needs is absolutely a trend that I've seen versus my family says I need help or I'm reaching out for my family member but the more direct interaction of a, feel, a peer, an individual with lived experience, feeling empowered to ask for their own needs and maybe not feel um, shamed by what the potential reactions are gonna be and see it as a, a growth and strength opportunity, which has just been exciting to see. Unfortunately, in the COVID, to get a little more specific, we all tightened our belts for a hot minute. We all focused on, can I pay my bills? Am I eating? Am I safe? health-wise? Um, do I still have a job? These kind of critical concerns, especially in relation to mental health, there's a hierarchy of needs. So we all understand returning to those base functions for survival was things individuals were doing, things companies were doing systematically. We all face this. So the talk of mental health was, it'll come. Um, right now we're in that wave. We're in the wave of the people who were hunkering down and grinning and bearing it, um, are feeling the strain, 
there's there's absolutely an exhaustion period that happens after this kind of continued exposure that we have never seen as a society before. And those who had really good tools, who weren't just grinning and bearing it, who were putting all of their normal appropriate practices into play and have been invested and engaged in their wellness, whether they have a disorder or just an understanding of their self-care and needs, those were put to the test. A lot of our tools were told no or disconnected. So unfortunately, I, I have seen a trend of people reaching out, but I also am very clearly hearing um, the impacts of what's happening to those that are not um, reaching out, whether they know they can or not, or whether they're having trouble accessing services. So there's definitely some pain that people are feeling right now. So I didn't want to just say that, man, we're all in the right directions because I can say as far as decades go, we've made some moves, but right now things are things are really tight so i'm grateful for this conversation i'm really grateful to have it too and thank you so much for sharing all of that information i think a lot of times with things like changing our attitudes towards mental health race other things like that gender a lot of times it's we move a little further back and then we move forward and it's very common so i think it's really important to acknowledge where we've we've come from, but also to acknowledge kind of where we still need to go and kind of short backs, especially right now, which I, I'm sure we'll get more into. Sarah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience before you interned at the VSC. I, I heard that you also worked briefly with an organization that was dedicated to suicide prevention. So could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to intern there? Yeah. Okay. So uh, Charlotte, I was really chuckling in the in, in my little muted background while you're talking about your junior year of college. I was also a psych major in college, uh, my junior year, really trying to decide what was uh, what I was going to do moving forward. Um, and I took an internship in Washington D.C. with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, I fell in love with AFSP for many reasons, but um, not for the reasons I really thought I was going to, which was more of that, like in DC, that office is dedicated to public policy. So they're on the Hill, they're attending hearings, they're working, they're getting senators to co-sign health bills that coordinate mental health with public health, um, working with local organizations. It's a, it's a really dynamic organization. So in my time interning with AFSP, I was like studying all these laws and looking at the research that like that was 2015. So the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, got passed in 2010. So it had been like five years and we could start seeing data trends of what mental health parity did. Because one of the big things for the ACA was it was supposed to put mental health on par with physical health. Um, and, and so in some ways it did. And in some ways we also didn't see the impact of that law. Um, suicide, as you um, mentioned earlier, Emily, is the 10th leading cause of death in America. And it's been the 10th leading cause of death for decades without change. Um, other causes of death have gone up and down depending on attention, depending on funding, depending on research. Suicide has been really stubborn staying there. So AFSP is the largest, yes, the largest private funder of suicide research and grant proposals. So kind of in my time there, I was like learning about suicide, learning about risks for suicide, learning about how to prevent it. And the whole time I was like, these laws are silly. Uh, I kind of need to be in the field to do it. And that's that was my route to mental health um, and to direct client care, which is an unexpected little route. Um, but kind of in my time 
since being out of school, since being out of client care, uh, and while we're talking about like public health with the pandemic, I'm back to thinking about suicide prevention in that public health lens. So it, it everything comes full circle. Yeah, it sounds like it. Thank you so much for sharing that. You wanted to add something, Charlotte? I, I love the, the points you're bringing up, Sarah, and it's, it's so interesting. You're right. Both you um, are referring to how cyclical things can be. Um, and the trend you mentioned of consistently the 10th leading cause of death for suicide, I look back each year when I'm trying to do statistics, whether it's in QPR or a lecture or a presentation, consistently suicide outranks murder nationally by 2.5. And that's my conservative margin. There are years in which it's three. So when we're thinking about media exposure and legislation and activities towards preventing not just gun violence, but violent crime in general and addressing aggression outwardly, every time you're hearing that, think that every two times five people are going, my math teacher just yelled in the back of my head, you can't have half a person. <laughs> um, so every twice that you see it on the news, five people have completed suicide and the impact of suicide attempts is is a mushroom above that so when you're thinking about the day-to-day -day interaction of what needs to be a national priority violent crime is, crime is a concern a lot of our health needs are a concern but so is suicide so sarah just you made such a strong point i wanted to echo it um so thank you yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely. And and I didn't realize that it was so consistent, actually, that it was always for a long time, I should say, the 10th leading cause of death in, in the U.S. And I believe for adolescents, I believe it's even more common um, than the 10th leading cause. Do you know the statistics on that, Charlotte? In the ages of 15 to 24, suicide is the third leading cause of death. And we know through conversations of reporting that the number one cause in that population, which is accidental or incidental death, does include a population of undocumented suicides. So there's always a conversation when you think about accidental death. If someone didn't leave a note and it's not obvious, what happened? Um, because risky behaviors are absolutely a precursor to um, suicide completion as well. That's a really good point to bring up. And also, whenever we look at statistics, it's only reported numbers too. So even even though they're very, very high, they're probably even more so than, than we realize, which is just a staggering thing to think about. Um, I also wanted to point out that QPR is a preventative um, strategy, correct, for, for suicide. It's question, persuade, and refer, if I'm correct. Okay, so just wanted to point that out. And actually, talking about trends, Charlotte, it kind of leads to my other question where I kind of want to get more into the meat of it is, with the pandemic, those who suffer from things like anxiety and depression may be feeling even more isolated. And those, those coping strategies that you were mentioning as well, where people have been working to um, better their mental health, they're kind of harder to access right now. So has the Mental Health Association of Central Florida seen any trends specifically regarding suicidal ideation during these past six months? We have been um, communicating with our community partners, including 211 for their crisis call center and our local law enforcement services. And as far as the calls coming in, the conversations are 
very much focused on COVID-related survival concerns. Um, we're just starting to get those really requests for stress. Um, we made our groups virtual, thankfully, as part of our forced innovation in COVID world. I hope you enjoy that phrasing. Um, so we've definitely been working with people for their depression and anxiety, but unfortunately what I'm seeing that the number that's so staggering that relates to this question is that suicide attempts are up significantly. Um, suicide completions are up as well, and a related factor has also to do with overdoses. 90% um, of individuals who die by suicide are suffering from either depression, addiction, or anxiety, and, and these, these things are exactly what's being strained and tested right now. Um, so we're seeing some increase in people asking for help, but unfortunately we're seeing a greater increase in the clarified need um, and how we can try to better disconnect to those who are in trouble right now, because it's a lot to ask. Hey, there's services out there. Just call us. Yes, please do. We want you to. But also for that person who's having a hard time calling, um, figuring out how to connect to them. Speaking of which, I think one of the things that we can do is be better bystanders and help the people in our lives that are experiencing suicidal ideation. That being said, Sarah, I think one of the ways we can do that is seeing some common signs. So can you share some of those common signs that someone is experiencing suicidal ideation? Yeah, absolutely. And Charlotte, feel free to chime in whenever, um, because this list can be really varied and in some, uh, some unexpected ways and some unexpected ways. Some of those most common signs are the ones that my perception of public health has been good at communicating across, which is looking, um, so hearing someone talk about killing themselves, uh, hearing someone talk about wanting to die, um, seeing someone who's feeling hopeless or who's in unbearable pain. And that unbearable pain can be physical pain or mental pain, um, mental anguish. Uh, that's kind of indistinguishable because, in fact, I mean, the brain registers mental anguish this, with the same receptors, it, it registers physical pain. So another reason that we talk about parity with mental health and physical health, back to that mental hygiene movement, um, love circular conversations. Um, so uh, some more signs, this one is a little bit uh, unexpected, but it's seeing someone who's acting really agitated, someone who's really anxious or someone who's really reckless. Um, that common media perception of someone who is suicidal or experiencing suicidal ideation is someone who is really low, really depressed, really withdrawn. And those are accurate, but it misses some of those um, more anxious and agitated uh, signs because that's a mood state that's that can be uh, sort of in, uh, unstable. And it's suicide ideation um, and suicide attempts can be very impulsive. So when you're anxious, when you're reckless like that, it increases impulsivity. Um, and then also if looking for signs of someone who might be experiencing suicidal ideation, that could be someone who has recently changed their mental health treatment. Maybe they've gone on a medication. Maybe they've come off a medication. Maybe they've stopped talking to their therapist, um, kind of starting to close doors or make changes. Um, Charlotte, something that I came to mind while you were talking about uh, the 211 calls and the trends with people increasing suicide uh, ideation, suicide attempts, completed suicides, is the fact that recent loss increases suicide ideation and increases suicide risk. So that's recent loss of a family member, a friend. Um, it's also recent job loss. 
unemployment, instability, and what are we in the middle of? A recent loss of stability, massive unemployment without necessarily the appropriate amount of support. Uh, despite efforts from agencies, uh, there's not enough top-down support. Um, so, so it's really kind of unfortunately what can be expected when you're having massive economic shifts right now. Those unexpected changes of behavior that I mentioned earlier could be more positive changes in behavior. Um, someone who's experiencing a suicide ideation might be a quiet kid who moves to the front of the classroom. Um, they want to leave a better impression of themselves as someone who was more engaged or a good student. Or it's your family member giving away prized possessions, um, trying to leave a better legacy. Um, so when I say like unexpected and expected, I guess I kind of want people to pay attention to the changes in people around them and changes in you too. What's your motivations? What's your level of self-care right now? Um, so uh, yeah, that's, I think that kind of covers the gamut. Thank you so much, Sarah. And Charlotte, if you have anything else that you'd like to add, please do. I love, Sarah, that you gave the balance because I was the atypical presentation. I was the straight-A student. I mean, all A's except for that B-plus in English. I could never fight that one. Um, so I was the overachiever, striving, fighting, and no one knew the internal battle. So I really appreciate when you're saying just pay attention to, man, that's different. And now I'm curious as to why that's different. Um, because whether it's in ourselves or somebody else, we need to see those changes coming. That's so well said, Sarah. And and as you mentioned, Sarah, like saying, for example, leaving prized possessions, that kind of thing, it's almost as if they're saying goodbye. So it could be different things. It could be leaving, uh, maybe literally saying goodbye to someone. It could be saying hi, I just want to say you're such a good friend to me and, and I'm so glad. Just having those kinds of conversations where it can be alarming and it can just open the dialogue, which we'll get more into on, on how to support someone. Um, but that being said, Charlotte, in our sexual assault trainings, we cover some myths versus facts. And one of the big myths surrounding suicide is that asking someone if they are suicidal will plant this idea in their head as if it wasn't there before and you're influencing them. So can you debunk this myth for us? This is my favorite conversation about suicide. I like weird world. You definitely need to be the person who gets excited about this stuff to want to continue to have these conversations. But I, I know I'm, I'm some of the anomaly. The phrase of are you thinking of suicide are you thinking of dying is is one that's horrifically hard to get out of your mouth it's taken me a bit of practice um so you're like man this is pretty much the easiest sentence i'm going to say today no um so translating it into what you actually want it to mean to your audience actually sometimes opens up our phrasing and what you're trying to say when you're asking that is I see you're in pain and I'm open to talking about your pain and I want to know how bad it is for you. I see that you're feeling something. So when you're asking about suicide, that's like saying to somebody when you're talking about cancer that you're talking about death. There's a lot of precursors to that conversation and involvement before that final alternative we want to avoid, which is death. Um, so the myth is definitely a myth. Um, you are not planting the idea this person didn't go, oh my God, that's the answer. I have been waiting, yes, that's it. 
like when someone suggested Swiffers for my blinds, I was like, well, now this works. I finally got the answer. Um, so as much as mass media and advertising wants to believe that we are going to be directly influenced by the exact words that we hear and they're going to plant right in and we are just going to march along, what you have an opportunity to do when you're asking somebody, are you thinking about death? Are you thinking about ending your life? Are you thinking about suicide? Is I see you and I care and I want to talk about it. And I was, I was talking about that person who's having trouble calling, you're opening a door and just as uncomfortable and hard as it is for you to ask, imagine how hard it is for that person in pain to bring it up. So maybe you're worried I'm asking this person, it's not something they're thinking about and I'm just bringing up a horrible topic and I'm gonna bum them out. Maybe, but the alternative for us on that conversation is that you look back in hindsight and think about the conversation you didn't have. Um, so it is absolutely a myth that you're going to plant the idea of a, a solution this person wasn't contemplating. And in the best case scenario, you actually have a clear picture of how they're feeling. And if crisis intervention is necessary, or if they feel amazingly supported that they were seen and cared about and that that can actually be the life-saving hope they needed. Very, very well said. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I think that's a really important myth to break down because it's one of the most important things we could do as supporters to those in our lives is to just open that door. And and this could be with any issue that, you know, as Sarah was mentioning earlier, changes in behavior that you see, it doesn't mean that this person is experiencing suicidal ideation. It doesn't mean that this person perhaps is, has gone through a sexual assault or is being sexually abused like I talk about in my trainings. But it opens that door in that conversation to see what what is it, what is going on, and then having that the ability to have that conversation with that person. Um, it's really important, especially I think right now. Um, that being said, talking a little bit about language here and, and some of the uh, terms you were mentioning too, uh, Charlotte, I wanted to bring up too, but Sarah, you know, on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the importance of language when it comes to social issues such as sexual violence and mental health. So lately there has been a shift from referring to someone committing suicide to someone dying by suicide. I also see, you know, suicide attempts, suicide completion, those terms. So could you share why this shift is important and the distinction between committing suicide and dying by suicide? Yeah, language is so, so important. I was so excited to get this question. Um, the way we talk about things is inevitably the way that we think about things. And that small difference between commit and uh, dying by or commit and complete is about um, is about criminalization. It's about destigmatization. So the thought that someone can commit suicide is the thought that they're doing something criminal. They're doing something that they should be guilty of. And they're doing something that their family, their friends, their loved ones, their survivors should be ashamed of um, when that just simply isn't the case. Uh, dying by suicide uh, in a lot of different advocacy circles and mental health circles is sometimes just the same as like dying from your depression or someone whose cancer treatment has just, it hasn't worked. Not that there's not mental health out there, um, but it's sort of like the continuation of something that 
has festered, something that hasn't been treated, something that hasn't been addressed. While we were talking about the myth of asking about someone, uh, asking someone if they're suicide planting the idea, um, the word isolation kept coming into my head because what is someone who is feeling suicidal, who's having suicidal ideations, who's considering it as a solution, they're feeling so isolated. And by not asking that simple question of if you're considering it, um, if you want to die by suicide, that's leaving that person in isolation. And the thought of someone committing suicide, of being guilty, is nothing but furthering that isolation, that shame, uh, that cycle. And I think that's, that's a really important kind of conversation and language differential right now during the pandemic, right now, if I must say, also during these uh, racial reckonings that we're having with the Black Lives Matters movements of what is criminal, what is criminalization, and how do we define it in society? That committing suicide is completely a social norm um, that we are chipping away at, and that I've seen media and mental health professionals get better at not uh, honoring that language. Um one thing that I might add to um, in this section about language is avoiding the words uh, successful or un or failed attempt. Um, it implies that there's like a performance to suicide um, while we're trying to avoid the word like committed suicide or attempted suicide, um, but a failed suicide attempt like, oh no, you survived it, um, can also kind of add those negative connotations of shame or performance or expectations when um, anyone who survives a suicide attempt gets another chance. Um, and like I was looking at the stats earlier, it's something like 85% of people who survive suicide, uh, who survive one suicide attempt, go on to engage with life, um, whether or not they attempt it again, but uh, whether or not they attempt it again or not, they are engaging in life beyond that. I hope that got communicated. I think, yeah, I think I understand what, what you're saying is after the attempt and suppose they survive, they go on to engage in life regardless if they attempt again or not. Is that? Yeah, there might be multiple attempts, but even with multiple attempts, they, most survivors survive multiple attempts and and surviving a suicide attempt is about survival it's not about a failed attempt right right as if there shouldn't be a a, a failure or or a success yes. when it yes. comes to suicide uh attempts absolutely um anything else that you want to add either you or charlotte about language as it comes to suicide i'm gonna take a candid moment because that's something i'm really enjoying about um, the, the movements with culture and race discussions right now is there's an active level of participation to make a change and then there's knowing that you're doing okay and being quiet over here is fine about it um, and something you said really resonated with me Sarah that um, success or failed attempts I make jokes um, about my experiences. I um, have attempted suicide several times and I'm terrible at it. And see, there's the joke. Mm -hmm. I always say that I'm terrible at suicide in sports. Um, so those are things, thankfully, I'm just not good at in my life. And that language, um, I'm hearing it in a reflective way. And I think I'm going to adjust that um, a bit in the way I present it, because I still like to be candid that after those attempts, there are opportunities for hope and, and readdressing the world ahead of you, which you touched on so beautifully. Um, but for those of you out there that are listening, whether it's a conversation about mental health or 
um, medical health or, or culture or race or faith or beliefs, um, think about the words you're using because how we um, speak is how we think. I, you just said it all so well, um, Sarah, so kudos. Good reflection, Charlotte. I loved hearing that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being open about that. Yeah, thank you so much for being vulnerable and open about that, Charlotte. I really appreciate that. And and I do, I want to highlight also and elevate what you were saying earlier about how there's a lot of shame and guilt when it comes to suicide and thinking about suicide. And that's probably a, a main barrier that people have to reaching out about it. And I think it does have a lot to do with that word commit um, as if uh, you are now isolated further as a criminal, even having the thoughts. So that's really, really important that we reach out. And speaking of which, Charlotte, I wanted to bring up, you know, if we think someone is a danger to themselves or is talking about killing themselves, what can or should a bystander do to help? And we talked a little bit about it, but maybe we could get more into it. I took my deep breath while I was still on mute um, because it's such a hard thing. Um, I, I put in the position, I love that I got this question because it's, it's part of my need as an advocate to exist, but it's a challenge. I, I challenge action from someone who sees something. The see something, say something. You can't let the bystander effect be the reason that you didn't participate. So if it's a stranger on a park bench or someone you love, having the conversation is an investment of energy. You are committing to participating, you're committing to listening, and that's why a lot of us avoid it. Um, so I, I candid conversation about that. I understand you might think, man, my day is really tough today. I don't need his problems too. But what we can do is touching on what Sarah talked about with that isolation is we can address somebody who's experiencing deep psychological pain and ask the questions about how they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and if what they're experiencing is leading them to thoughts of ending their own life. That's the first huge step is having a conversation. I, in my position at the agency, through different shapes and forms, have heard so many candid conversations from individuals saying, I don't want to talk to my psychiatrist about it because they're just going to bankrupt me. I don't even want to talk to my licensed practitioner who has a master's and experience in the field about this because they're going to throw up a huge alarm and not have a realistic conversation with me. So we don't want to err too far on that side. Having an open dynamic conversation about pain and discomfort, as fun as that is for all sides of the conversation, is critical in understanding risk factors and identifying um, need and identifying next steps. So if you're in that conversation and you are talking to somebody who is confirming that they are having deep psychological pain and they, they are really unsure about what tomorrow looks like and, and how they feel about engaging in it, and maybe they don't have a plan, maybe they do, there's still a lot of opportunity to do a referral and connect to these licensed providers who are not all going to just call 911 on you. There are a lot of them that are engaged in the fact that they are part of the keys to tools to get you out of that hole. Um, so on our website, the Mental Health Association of Central Florida, MHACF.org, the first button that comes up on the mobile version or online is Get Help. 
and it's a referral form. It's something I've used myself and with my friends when they're like, oh, you know, Charlotte, you're the person in mental health. I, I'm okay, but I just want to talk to somebody. Put in your name, put in where you are because Orlando's huge. We don't want to send you across the moon. We want to make life easy for you when it's already hard. You tell us what you're looking for. And it's okay to also say, I don't know what I'm looking for. This is what I'm dealing with. Please advise me based on what you know. And we have a system that will do research and we go through the list of things and we find opportunities that meet the specifics that they're looking for and then the opportunity for hope comes in because now instead of just the pain on isolation and stress i was feeling there's a list of options in front of me i'm now empowered with the opportunity to have a choice to exercise a preference in my next step so some people when they're in pain their loved ones address them, you need to go get help. You, you need to talk to somebody. That can feel so dismissive and so cold. Okay, well, that was the obvious solution. I just chose not to do that. No. Um, so finding that specialized person that you trust deeply enough to share your pain with and, and hope that they're going to guide you to tools and tomorrow and hope for the future. So the short answer is talk to somebody, engage them, identify if there's a need. If there's a chance to offer hope through connection to resources, that increases things. Um, our process takes a few days. Two on one is a really great opportunity to get immediate resources. There's there's um, kind of best fit scenarios for each system. And then the um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a great list of crisis resources on their website. I refer to the National Suicide Hotline with the text avenues. So in the moment, you don't have to, as the community member, helper, friend, parent, loved one, have all the answers. You just have to engage the person so they don't know that, so they know they're not alone and help connect to that expert. That's what offers hope and hope saves lives. Um, if it is an emergency, call 911, ask for a CIT officer. That's a crisis intervention training. It's a specialization a law enforcement officer can have to de-escalate an individual in a mental health crisis. And with all of the challenges law enforcement is facing, please disclose as much as you can about the crisis to dispatch. So the officer attending the scene will be as responsive and aware of what's going on as possible. Um, if there is a plan, means to enact that plan, and no way to reduce the lethal triad by reducing substances or reduced access to the risk um, factor or the weapon that would be used for completion, um, and I, I definitely say weapon, I like a powerful word, even if it's medications, it's, it's, its impact is strong. Um, so if you can't mediate those risk factors without anything other than calling 911, please do. Um, this person's life does matter. A psychiatric evaluation will follow the police transport, um, whether it's voluntary or involuntary of 72 hours, and determined based on the psychiatric evaluations, hospitalization may follow. But it absolutely has to do with the need, and it's a hospital bill. Um, emergency treatment, medical or psychiatric, comes home with a bill. And there are usually several zeros behind it. Um, so use that in your factor. If someone can access other services other than the Baker Act, please do. Um, but if someone's going to die, you don't have a choice. You have to use that service. So I went all over the place with that answer. So I think I kind of got to the points of that there. It's just, I think of all the scenarios over the years and when in doubt, call for help. 
Um, 211 has great resources, American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention and our agency, the Mental Health Association are here to support you and guide you because we're in this together. Thank you so, so much, Charlotte. I really appreciate it. I think um, that was really succinct, actually. I know you said you went all over the place, but I, it was very succinct and I was definitely able to follow it along. And thank you for explaining a little bit about the Baker Act. As some uh, people who are listening who are not from Florida, I was not originally from Florida. So when I came here and I was hearing the term when we would do our intakes at the Rape Crisis Center here, uh, one of the questions is, have you ever been Baker acted? And I said, what is that? Uh, so basically, yeah. So what Charlotte mentioned, it is 72 hours of psychiatric evaluation. It can be voluntary or involuntary. And so the fear of talking to some professionals that about suicide comes from that, the fear of being Baker acted is, is what Charlotte was mentioning. But um, resources like 211 and the Mental Health Association of Central Florida and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention can connect you with people that you feel safe to talk about because talking about it is very, very important and having these conversations can bring hope like Charlotte was mentioning and can save lives. Uh, Sarah, I wanted to kind of shifting gears a little bit here, you know, on Rain's website, which is where we get a lot of our statistics around sexual violence, uh, they report that 33% of women who are raped contemplate suicide. So how can the Victim Service Center help someone who is contemplating suicide as a former intern and volunteer? <laughs> Yeah, as a former intern and volunteer, I can say I have not been paid to say this uh, to say this endorsement that I am about to give. Um, it is unbiased except through my own exposure to VSC. And my, so, to get to my answer, it's VSC is doing what it needs to do um, to uh, help someone who is contemplating suicide. And by that, I mean that national guidelines say that. Um, with suicide prevention being a public health question and public health imperative, then we need public approaches. We need community counseling that is affordable and available um, and competent. It ne You need people in the community who can not only hear people, um, hear survivors, hear their stories, give comfort, give hope. Um, not, you can't give comfort, you can't give hope. They can receive comfort and hope from, from your comforting and hopeful presence. Um, but having someone who is there and available, um, whether that's through VSC's hotline, which I have a little number here, it's 407-500-HEAL or 407-500-4325, the 24-7 hour hot, rape crisis hotline, or through 211 through, um, oh, but I'm talking about VSC. I was about to, actually, sidebar, let me also plug the Trevor Project um, on AFSP's website um, as part of those competent referrals um, for if you're experiencing suicide ideation or, you really, or you're just in a moment of crisis. Crisis doesn't have to just be suicide, um, but the Trevor Project is um, dedicated to helping LGBT individuals, and it's, it's nice to have you know, support in which you feel seen and heard based off of your identity, because all of our identities matter. Sorry for that sidebar. <laughs> not sorry. It's a good sidebar. Oh, not <laughs> sorry at all. That's wonderful. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Um, but back to VSC, um, having something free in, in the community is great. What do we know about um, that trauma and suicide, um, suicide ideation, they kind of share in common that feeling of isolation, that feeling of hopelessness, that feeling of this is how the world is always going to be. 
Um, I am forever going to feel like this. Um, and through trained crisis counselors, through trained trauma therapists, uh, survivors can see that this isn't the only way. Um, and then beyond that, I really like VSCs of free and available survivor support groups um, because a client or someone in the community who might be feeling suicidal, who might be feeling hopeless, who might be feeling isolated can see a, a room of survivors who are in different stages of their healing, um, seeing hope manifested through the simple reality of other people's lives go on. Um, and there's like a simple beauty in the monotony of, of life um, and seeing that like, oh, look at where they are now. Maybe I will be in that place too someday. Um, so that's where I really like VSC's services. It's, they're free. They've got a 24-hour hotline, unlimited services, crisis services, um, groups, community events, uh, LGBT uh, crisis counselors, uh, like uh, with the Zebra Coalition. So, you know, you, you've got it going on. I really appreciate you giving us that endorsement completely free as well. <laughs> um, I also want to mention that what's you were mentioning other resources as well. And, and the VSC also connects to their partners in the community, including the Mental Health Association of Central Florida. And so no matter what, yeah, we have services that are that are catered to survivors of trauma as well. Um, we we service, you know, three counties but we would never turn anyone away. We'll always be able to provide that information for you and, and that connection too. So thank you so much, Sarah. Um, so Charlotte, when it comes to sexual violence, we talk a lot about at-risk populations. So I'm, I wanted to bring up this conversation about going into specific demographics, maybe gender, race, sexual orientation, those kinds of things, and their risk for suicide. I was back and forth on how like deeply to get into this because we could spend hours breaking it down. And to one side, it's great that we have that data because you can have a realistic and tangible conversation. But two, it's also horrifying to see the numbers. Um, what I wanted to make sure I was clear with in my response is that suicide is an experience that comes as a result from crisis, trauma, deep psychological pain, and things that have built, and that can exist across any lines. Everyone is unfortunately someone who could be put into a circumstance or experience um, life circumstances that, that lead to that question. So no one's immune, um, unfortunately. Sorry, guys. I have heard um, experiences of, of children who experience a loss of that family member, that grandpa who made made life matter, like that was what it was about. And this four-year-old walks in front of a school bus attempting to end their life because they wanted, they didn't want to be in this world anymore. They wanted to be with grandpa in heaven. And they knew enough about their pain and their loss to know that they were making a cognitive choice. So when people talk about a youth not knowing, well, okay, maybe through lived experience, we don't know the grand impacts that we're going to make. But that was a clear thought. Um, it was it was a cogent um, conversation they were having afterwards. 
Men um, die by suicide 3.5 times more often than women. There are trends, as we talked about, for the ages of 15 to 24 that the um, the ranking where suicide is in the top 10 causes greatly jumps. Um, there are a lot of factors in that. The ages of 15 to 24 are when people may be victims of a certain vulnerable um, circumstances. Our brains don't fully maturate till 23, 24. So we're, we're fighting a full life system without a complete toolbox that's developing and growing. And who knows what um, influences we have put into that further. So those ACE factors that tie into people's risks. So what have I been exposed to? What's in my family? dynamics, what do I have um, higher likelihoods of experiencing than my peers, and as far as the frequency in the human race, on average, there are 132 suicides per day. So it's really the message is definitely across the board, and as Sarah mentioned, and, and you did as well, is just trauma, isolation, hopelessness, these circumstances that somebody has been through that puts them in that place without the hope that a program like Victim Services offers or, or just the idea that there could be a future like you talked about, Sarah, I can see myself in that position. Um, so there are a lot of factors that tie into it. And I wanted to kind of take it into a hopeful setting from this is what you guys were talking about, about culture and, and finding that connection. That's something we as the Mental Health Association and me as a peer really promote is cultural competent conversations. Whether I'm in the queer world and want somebody who understands my LGBTQ plus perspective, or I want to speak in my native tongue, or I want you to understand that there are spirits in my life or my faith in my life as part of the formula for my wellness. So whatever population you come from as you're hearing this conversation, know that there are resources and skilled practitioners in your bubble that you can connect to. You don't have to explain your whole worldview to somebody before they can start to support you. And you have the right to ask for those kind of services to say that I am most comfortable accessing my services in Portuguese and I would like somebody who doesn't remind me of an abusive relationship I had previously. So I would like a male or a female of this specific age range our service is designed to take those awkward questions from you and empower you to then have a list of providers that matches those circumstances. So for that man who is at greater risk than that woman, because just of the trends we've been seeing, you don't have to talk to a lady about your problems. We can connect you to another guy who's going to get it. There is such a cool program the VA has, um, and I'm going to totally butcher the title, so I'm going to just describe it instead. But these gentlemen go fishing. They don't talk about stuff. They don't have feelings to deal with, but they regularly, I mean, before COVID, would go out fishing. And they knew they always had a core group of people with shared ex lived experiences who understand their background and where they're coming from. And maybe they'd have something they have to talk about that day, but it wasn't about feelings. Um, so whatever context you have to be in that gives you that safe space to connect, um, we want to help you bridge that gap out of isolation and address it. Um, I do want to talk about risk factors when you're considering your loved one. Um, are they at higher risk as part of this question? 
firearms count for just about 50% of suicide deaths. So do consider that if an individual has experience with a firearm, it's not that they suddenly have a better idea than anybody else, but they have comfort and access to a more lethal means of ending their lives. Um, part of why I survived is I did not have an understanding of the significance of lethality. I didn't know what how many doses of milligrams and stuff, and thank goodness the internet wasn't that great back then, um, or I really could have found out those details I needed. So that's something to consider. So if somebody does have access to firearms, that's where that kind of conversation can come in. Um, an individual with a mental illness is more likely to harm themselves than somebody else. So the risk of suicide is greater than that outward aggression. Um, even when you're seeing that aggressive behavior that the um, in, impulsive reaction may be to harm themselves. Um, where do you end on this? You don't, you don't transition. There's just so much more to say. Um, but, but just take anything your gut tells you as a risk factor, as a serious instinct um, and, and listen to your body's instincts. We, we do sense a lot of what's going on. So even if somebody doesn't fit into what's described as a high risk population, they are not immune to it um, and they deserve your support as well. So I hope that kind of offered a picture for everyone. That did. Thank you so much, Charlotte. And and kind of like while, how we're going back to the conversation, coming back, it's more of just there's no harm in asking. So you might as well ask. So that's really, really important to highlight as well. So thank you so much, Charlotte. I really appreciate all the information that you shared. Um, that being said, Sarah, you know, as mentioned earlier, a couple of times, actually, according to the reports from 2017 by the CDC or the Center of, for Disease Control, uh, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., uh, even though it is such a prevalent issue that we've been highlighting. Why do you think it's not talked about? Okay. Um so Emily does a really good job of sending these questions ahead of time. So I was like sitting on my little keyboard going like stigma, destigmatize suicide. And because like that's kind of where I was at with with suicide as a public health effort in um, mental health advocacy where I'm like, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. Uh, and then I had to check myself because I wasn't being honest with that answer, which is just the same, the plain, simple fact that suicide is hard to talk about. It, it is. We all have, that's a bold statement. Um, and maybe not everyone would confess to it, but I would wager that 99% of the population has a suicide story, has someone who they know, someone who their loved one knows, someone in their life who has been impacted by suicide, um, either from them being, from that person being suicide, um, being, having, experiencing suicide ideation, or from knowing someone who died by suicide. Um, and so it's just, it's just hard to talk about. It's emotional. It's, it can be scary. It triggers ideas of loss, of grief, um, of going back to that conversation around guilt and shame, because it's still seen as a personal failure, a personal choice, uh, still seen as something that, uh, a weakness, uh, when it some, when suicide is not a reflection of weakness, but a reflection of deep, deep psychological pain um, or physical pain, as I mentioned, um, one of the risk factors for. So it's a prevalent issue and it's not talked about because it's just not it's not pretty. It's not pleasant to talk about the media that does talk about suicide tends to do it in a very irresponsible way. 
there's ways in which we can talk about suicide in a healthy conversation or ways in which media can glorify it and ideal ideal how do you say make idols of people idolize oh good lord um idolize like famous people who might die by suicide um and that while talking about suicide doesn't put the idea of suicide in people's heads glorifying it can make people who have that idea consider um consider acting on an impulse consider acting on that ideal so suicide is hard to talk about it's hard to talk about properly it's hard to talk about um respectfully when you don't have that language um and in this conversation in which we are talking about language um yes try for your language but i'd rather you ask someone the suicide question um and maybe you blunder over your words maybe it's uncomfortable but i'd rather you ask the question imperfectly than not at all as long as your demeanor is empathetic it's caring it's listening the verbiage can come later. I want that person to feel heard, to feel seen, uh, to not feel so isolated. Um, so that's that's the emotional answer, which is just, it is hard. And that's okay to acknowledge. Um, and it's okay to work through because we can work through difficult emotions. They're, they're scary, but they're not insurmountable. Um, and the other answer is uh, to get on my soapbox, uh, as if I have not been sitting on a soapbox. <laughs> um, suicide research is uh, I don't want to say the word criminally underfunded, but it is dramatically underfunded by the federal government. Um, there are uh, political reasons for not uh, funding suicide research, including that it's unpopular, it's not family friendly to talk about, um, but also that 50% of suicides are completed through a um, firearm. And so when, uh, when it comes to researching lethal means, it is not popular to pay attention to firearms. Um, so there are some literal laws that prevent us from being able to track firearm deaths, which means that we're having difficulty tracking suicide deaths by suicide um, and trends through that, uh, through, through firearm deaths. Um, and so mental health isn't valued typically. Um, so you don't get uh, funding through laws, complications through uh gun lobbies that don't want research paid attention to it um that is the short answer <laughs> for why uh it is uh not talked about as often as it should be um but i hope that in hearing some of this conversation maybe we can begin talking about it because those things those difficulties that i listed of um severe government underfunding that can be addressed through individual action like emailing your senators saying hey I would like research on this. And AFSP, again, to plug them, has great act, uh, great web sections on their website for putting in your email um, for you to be able to send email blasts to your representatives about supporting mental health legislation and supporting uh, suicide research and funding. Good. Um, those form letters are so good for you to plug, Sarah, um, because some people don't know where to start, and that's so good. Um, and something you said, I, I'm so lit up that I hate these conversations can never shorten up. Um, but something you said really connected for what I wanted to explain earlier when having the conversation is you wanted to make, you were saying making sure that they feel heard. Part of what I focus on when I talk about coaching somebody in the suicide conversation is ask until you understand. 
because I'm often asking a supporter about the circumstances and we get to a point in the conversation where they say, well, I don't know. And I say, well, did you ask them? What? No. So until you understand, that's why I'm saying talking, see how they feel, great. But someone might give you a passive answer, or if you're really lucky, get the direct answer that Sarah was talking about earlier, or the indirect, no, I'm just, you know, kind of at wit's end. Ask until you understand. Um, and part of why the conversation can be so hard as well is, is there are real impacts of secondary trauma. If you've ever talked to somebody about their experiences of deep pain, you feel that impact later on. And you need to provide yourself as a caregiver self-care um, to heal from what you were just exposed to. The dispatchers on 911 are faced with such trauma all the time, and that's really culturally hard to understand sometimes because you weren't there. But as Sarah said, the brain processes that psychological pain and that physical pain with those same neurotransmitters. So whether you experienced it or the story was scary enough for you to still feel fear, you can be traumatized by that. I don't have to, like after seeing Jaws, I knew to watch out for that dark water. I was in on a couch watching that movie and I knew. So those kind of things are real. And then um, media, your comments on, on how things are portrayed in media conversation was some of the hesitance I had candidly in highlighting the statistics around highly at risk populations. And not because I don't wanna one, glorify it, but two, Societally, it can be seen as an excuse. If individuals facing transition in gender have a high rate of suicide because of the experiences they're going through, is that something that just gets a pass because it's a normally seen number? Oh my gosh, the goosebumps all over my body. So the hesitance in that is I don't want to say if you're from this population and you drink too much and you have access to guns, you're probably going to die by suicide. There's the rates on it because that's how conversationally some people look at cancer rates and, and heart diseases or COVID. I'm just going to get it. Might as well not wear my mask. Um, so there's definitely a lot of data and do check out the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention as a way and Mental Health America to explore suicide statistics. But it's an opportunity for candor that that's part of why I was hesitant to really share too much of it because it changes the conversation. Wonderful point, Charlotte. And if I can tack on to it too, um, when, when we're looking at those statistics or looking at those um, identity factors in suicide research, um, one, a lot of identity factors aren't tracked on death certificates. So what available information we have isn't going to be accurate in the first place, even if that information out there it can be scary. And two, there is such a danger in looking at suicide and seeing it as a one-factor story when it rarely, rarely, rarely ever is one factor. So when you're looking at those identity factors of, of um, especially in the LGBT community of, well, you had these X, Y, and Z going against you because of who you are. So this was an inevitability. It's not only a lie, um, but it it is... Uh, disgustingly reductionistic in the suicide conversation. Um, and it is an excuse to those of us with privilege points to not create environments of safety for those people, um, for, for people in your life, for your loved ones who do not feel safe because of experiences of, of discrimination that might 
be listed as a research factor of an increased um, risk for suicide. But yes, it to talk about I to talk about risk factors is to not say that this is an inevitability is to say that it is a risk factor and there is still support and there is still responsibility in the community to address that risk factor. Such a good point. Love it. I love everything that you both are saying. So, so important. And I think, yes, I want to echo that and elevate that. Absolutely. Um, so I really appreciate both of your inputs on that. Um, as a final question to your boat, to you both, uh, what would you like to share to the audience in regards to suicide prevention before we sign off? I'll jump in, um, and Sarah, you're so good with those details. I'll, you'll finish us out beautifully. My final thought is something we we all have actually said earlier is this hope saves lives. If you are concerned about someone, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the solution. You have to let them know that you care, that they're not alone, and if possible, connect them to hope. No matter the size, hope is powerful. And if you're considering suicide, you matter, pain can change, and you deserve hope. My Charlotte got chills. I got chills a few times in this podcast, I won't lie. But Sarah, is there, is there anything that you'd like to share? Um, one, I'd love to echo what Charlotte said, because especially in this, it, it, you matter. Especially if you're listening to this podcast right now, um, thinking about yourself, hearing yourself. Uh, maybe in these numbers, which what are numbers, but people and stories behind them. Um, so you matter. Um, and hope is out there. Help is out there, even if you can't feel it right now. Um, so take that message home. When when I think about suicide prevention, and again, now I'm seeing it again in this like new public health light rather than this one-to-one conversational light, which is very important. Um but I can't help but see things in a public health way right now during the pandemic. And so when I think about the conversations we have around checking in with each other, uh, I think about the conversation about masks. It's when I wear my mask, I protect you. And when you wear your mask, you protect me. So when I check on you, you, I'm helping you. And when you check on me, I'm helping, you're helping me. There's this, I'm, I'm so, so thoughtful on this interdependence nature, nature of health and of survival nowadays. And if suicide is a public health problem, then it has to be addressed through community and it has to be addressed through public, through public means of legislation and laws and which trickle down into family and to friends if family isn't available to you. Um, but that community manifests in different ways and cares for each other in different ways. So when you care for one for another person, they can care for you too in that sort of way. Um, and if you don't have that, then it's about checking in on yourself, doing, doing that work for yourself because you matter and because you have the agency to be able to do that or to recognize that I need help in doing this. Um, so, so yeah, I'm just, I, I think in suicide prevention, it's, I'm caught in that idea of interdependence that we have an impact on one another and that impact can be beautiful, um, and can be healing and can be hopeful. Um, and you have to be that impact for yourself sometimes. Wonderfully put. I don't think I could add anything else to that. You're, you both are just, wow, superstars, honestly. So I'm just going to say that that's a beautiful place to sign off. So thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. 
The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services to victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Sarah and Charlotte, for joining me today. Thank you. 